0: and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Now last Sunday, Ben introduced a new series of lessons that will be preached by our various ministers over the next few weeks. And he uh, he informed us that that series is going to be about various parables of Jesus. Now, it is not our goal to do every parable. We're just doing four total parables at this time. Our thinking was, try and do some parables that may not get addressed as frequently as some of the more common parables. So we actually started a list of some of the parables that we wouldn't do. Like we wouldn't do the Good Samaritan, Parable of the Talents, and a couple of others that we had put on our list because we wanted to focus in on some parables that maybe we don't talk about very often. And when we came up with this subject matter, I immediately knew which parable I wanted to address. And it's the parable that's going to appear here in Luke chapter 16 in in the first eight or so verses. Now, here's the thing about Jesus' parables. They are fascinating pieces of teaching. Because when you go to Jesus' parables, you have these beautiful parables illustrations that stand out particularly in the the culture of that day to drive home a key point that he's talking about and and even for us some parables Jesus you'll notice will take the time to explain what he's talking about so that there will be no confusion about their point such is the case with the parable of the sower that you can read over in Matthew chapter 13 and then there are some parables which, which feature such a good application, an application that Jesus spends time explaining after the parable, and he does such a good job with that, expl- that, that application that you completely understand the point of the parable. Such is the case with uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan over there in Luke chapter 10, or even the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew chapter two. Both of those parables basically only have a one-sentence summation and application, but it's so concise, so clear, so understandable that you walk away and uh, you've got the parable down. And then you've got some of Jesus' parables that are so brilliant, so easy to understand, that there's no further comment needed by Jesus. Such is the case with the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, or even the parable of the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew chapter 20. Just brilliantly told illustrations of a biblical truth that you walk away from, you've grasped the point of the parable. But then you've got a parable like what we have here in Luke chapter 16. It's an incredibly strange and difficult parable. In fact... Even a consensus of what this parable should be called. If you've got a New King James translation, the parable subheading is going to be the parable of the unjust steward. If you're using a New American Standard version, the heading will be simply the unrighteous manager. And If you're using an English Standard Version, the title that will appear above this parable is the parable of the dishonest manager. The titles vary between the translations because of their interpretation of the negative attribute associated with this, this manager or steward character in the parable. They're all based on an attribute mentioned in verse 8 here of Luke chapter 16 and whatever trans whatever word chosen to translate there is the title is used in the title of the parable but this is one place where i actually like how the new international version provi- provided a title because their title for this parable is the parable of the shrewd manager what they have done with that title is focused on the good attribute of the primary character in the story. It's focused on the characteristic that receives commendation there in verse 8. And so I'm going to refer to this as the parable of the shrewd manager because I think that's the key element of the story. The fact that I spent time talking about the title of this parable and we were looking at negative terms that were used and a positive term that is used that tells you that something is weird about this parable and it definitely is so what I want you to do is read along with me I'm going to read from verse 1 of Luke chapter 16 through the first half of verse 8 see we're going to stop there because scholars can't even agree where this parable technically ends. And so I've arbitrarily chosen by the power invested in me as the guy speaking to you tonight that the middle of verse 8 is going to be the end of this parable. So let's read along, beginning in verse 1, Luke chapter 16. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is, is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe, master? He said, 100 measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. So he said to him, Take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. It's such a strange. Parable, because on the surface, it seems like this steward, this manager, is being praised for unethical business practices since he's reducing the amounts that people owed his master before he himself gets fired. And instead of receiving condemnation for his actions in this parable, he receives Commendation. Isn't that strange? That doesn't make sense. His actions would break before a judge in today's society, wouldn't it? How are we supposed to apply this parable? What about this parable is the point that Jesus wants us to take away? What does this guy's activity have to do with life in the kingdom of God? Well, to get to that point, I I want to spend some time just making some observations about the parable itself, particularly about this manager-slash-steward character. Because the first thing you're going to notice about this manager-steward character is that he's accused of wasting the rich man's possessions. Now, we need to understand back in in, in those days, a, a wealthy person would hire a servant to be in charge of his assets. In fact, this morning we spoke about Joseph. That's exactly what Joseph became for Potiphar. He was the steward of Potiphar's house, which meant he had charge of all of his assets. And right here in this parable, we have a man who's identified as a manager or steward, and he's functioning in the house of a very wealthy man as the one overseeing his assets. And so we have this situation where an accusation has been brought against this guy that he's been wasting his master's assets. It's interesting. You look there at verse 1. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. The manager, I mean, excuse me, the rich man didn't bring the charges. Somebody else did. The rich man learned of these accusations. And the accusations against this manager center around him being wasteful. Now, wasteful, that's an interesting term, that he is wasting the, ma- the rich man's possessions. It's interesting because of where this parable sits. Did you pay attention to that when you opened to Luke chapter 16 tonight? What chapter comes before Luke chapter 16? That's a trick question. Hopefully you can answer that correctly. It's Luke chapter 15. Do you know what Luke chapter 15 has in it? It has three parables, and they're called the lost parables. It's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son, which is a much better title than prodigal, because I bet most of you don't even know what prodigal means. And what's so very fascinating about that, that lost son parable, what did that lost son do with the money he took from his dad. I think it's verse 13 of chapter 15 where we're told that he wasted it. The same term is being used here in chapter 16 and verse 1 that was used in chapter 15 and verse 13. And wasting implies poor stewardship maybe this manager was careless with the rich man's wealth or maybe he misappropriated the rich man's finances causing him to lose a considerable amount of money we don't know the specifics of what he did that was wasteful but we do know this we know number one that the rich man believed the accusations and ordered an audit of the manager's financial activity. And we know, number two, that this manager was guilty because he anticipated unemployment. Whatever the accusations were, this guy had done it. Was, in fact, wasteful, whatever that means. And knew he was getting fired. Now, the Rich man had basically said that before this accounting day came, but I get the impression that because there is already, because there is a sufficient evidence for guilt already, that that's the reason for the firing. That's the reason for telling him you're not going to be manager anymore. This guy's guilty. Isn't that interesting? The main character in a- Parable that Jesus is telling and and the main character in this parable that Jesus is going to commend in the parable Is guilty Isn't fascinating And it makes it so hard for us to understand Why this guy matters because right off the bat we have a negative perception of this manager We already perceive him as guilty. We already know that he's been wasteful. We already think that he is wrong. And then the story unfolds with an insight into the way his mind is working about what he's going to do next. We're given this glimpse into his own mental uh, activity about, hey, what do I do from here? And we find out that he thinks he's too weak for me labor and he's too proud to be a beggar right there you have no sympathy for this guy because from our american westernized industrialized pick yourself up by your bootstraps mentality we're thinking how can you say you're not willing to do manual labor or beg Because you need to have that mentality that you'll do whatever it takes to provide for your family. That's how we view it. Right off the bat, we don't like this guy. We don't think highly of him at all because he's wasted a good job. He doesn't come across as very manly, and he's full of pride. We don't like him. And here's the thing. Not only is the manager accused of wasting the rich man's possessions, but as this story unfolds, as we find out what his grand scheme is, it becomes very apparent that he's guilty of something. Specifically, the story describes how he's guilty of reducing the debts of the rich man's debtors. So the manager's solution to his pending joblessness is to ingratiate himself to some of the rich man's debtors by reducing their debts. He's decided to show them mercy financially with the anticipation that they will return the favor when he faces his pending financial crisis. I'll scratch your back and you'll scratch mine. That's his mentality here. His actions do pose a dilemma for us. Because from our vantage point, they appear entirely unethical. At face value, it seems that this manager, without the rich man's approval or the rich man's knowledge, has reduced the bills of this rich man's creditors. And so we conclude that the manager has done something sketchy, something illegal. Something definitely unethical. Our perception is aided by the fact that Luke describes the manager in verse 8 as unrighteous or unjust or dishonest, depending on the translation you read. And yet, despite those descriptions of this, rich, of this, of this manager, and despite the activity of this manager in reducing those people's debts, The rich man commends him. And that commendation seems to imply, at the very least, that there is something morally appropriate about his actions. So we're left confused, wondering whether or not the manager's actions here are right or wrong. Which is it? It's easy for us to see how they're wrong, but there is a couple of plausible explanations for his actions that could help us understand how they could be in a more ethical light. And let me explain. First, there is the possibility that when he canceled a portion of the debt, he was canceling his own commission. You've got to think in terms of Zacchaeus for a moment. Now, this guy is not a tax collector like Zacchaeus, but he is a a financial man. He is serving this rich man's household as the asset manager. And there may be a sense in which he is able to charge an extra fee and pocket himself. So the possibility exists that as he's sitting there working with these individuals and canceling a portion of their debt, all he's really doing is canceling the portion he was going to take from them. So he's giving up his financial gain in this scenario. If that is the case, then indeed his actions are commendable because he's going to... um, win the approval and favor of these debtors who see him showing financial mercy to him, and he's going to receive the favor of the rich man as well for having made a wise and selfless move. So that's one possibility. He's sacrificing his own personal gain by giving up his commission. Another possibility is that he lowered the bills by removing his master's interest. Mosaic law forbid Jews charging their kinsmen interest when they lent them money. Exodus chapter 22, verse 25, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 36, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19, they all, all those passages, condemn charging interest to a fellow Jew. So it's possible here that as the asset manager for this rich man, the manager is aware that there is interest being charged against, which is against the law of Moses. It may be that the rich man is ignoring this prohibition. So when the manager's job was on the line, he eliminated the interest on these loans, which would have endeared him to his to excuse me, to those debtors, those debtors who would have viewed him as a merciful financier, and if that's what he's doing, if his actions here are canceling interest, should not have protected, then he's actually protecting himself from the rich man, because the rich man can't criticize, the rich man uh, can't condemn, the rich man can't take this guy to court without exposing his own sin. And so it may be a situation where the manager is finally making the choice in this moment to do what's right according to God's law. He may be making the ethical decision that he's been putting off for far too long. Now, I don't know if these two options are, in fact, happening here. Jesus didn't expound on it any more than we have in the text. But I share them with you because they do paint the story in a different light, potentially. They may help us understand how the actions of this manager do have an ethical position. And if either of these two scenarios is correct, then the actions of the manager would be understandably commendable because they would be in keeping with the Lord's teachings on mercy, on benevolence, on justice. So we need to to keep that possibility open. Not only do we read about the manager's the manager being accused of being wasteful? And do we see him being guilty of reducing debts, whether or not that was ethical is a different story. But the other thing we see here is this commendation. The manager is commended for being shrewd. It's important to note that the manager is not commended for unethical activity. He is described as unrighteous, unjust, or dishonest, depending on the translation you're reading, but that's not what he's commended for. And the narrative description of him being either unrighteous, unjust, or dishonest may not be based on his activity in reducing the debts of the debtors. That could be just calling back to his failures when he was wasteful. That could be expounding on the wasteful description that you have way back in verse 1. One thing we know for sure, though, is that in verse 8, he's commended for his shrewdness. We don't use the word shrewd very often. But shrewdness is defined as the quality of having or showing good powers Of judgment and the Greek word translated here can also be translated as intelligent or wise or prudent when we hear the word shrewd we don't usually put positive connotations like intelligent wise and prudent in fact if you were just to do a word search in your Bible for the word shrewd Of the time it's going to be associated with evil people or sinful activity. When we hear the word shrewd, we have a tendency to connect with that description of the serpent who is more crafty than any other creature. That's what we think of when we hear shrewd most of the time, but it doesn't necessitate that negative connotation. It can mean intelligent, wise, or prudent. In fact, more often than not, the Greek word that's translated shrewd here is translated one of those other ways in the New Testament. Because it's the same word that appears in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24 where we read about the wise, wise man who built his house on the rock. It's the same word that will appear in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16. When Jesus sent out the apostles on an evangelistic campaign and told them that he was sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves and then instructed them to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And it's the same word that's used multiple times in Matthew chapter 25 in another parable. It's used in a parable to describe some women as wise who brought extra oil for their lamps so they could stay up and wait on the bridegroom. My point is that when this Greek word appears in our New Testament, it normally isn't translated shrewd. Most often it gets translated wise. And so we need to think about the term in that similar vein. That when we talk about shrewdness, we're talking about wisdom, intelligence, and prudence. So what the manager is being commended for is his astuteness, his ability to make wise decisions in the face of difficult circumstances and for his ability to use his intelligence to make preparations for his future. This manager is being commended for an attribute that we should all be in pursuit of. He's not being commended for whatever activities preceded this that would be considered dishonest, unrighteous, or unjust. And as I was studying this, it, it, it caught my attention. This isn't the only parable where there is a character in the story who does something, that, who, who does something at least at some point in the story that is not commendable but that still is held up as the exemplar in the parable. I mentioned the parable in Matthew chapter 25, these women who were waiting on a bridegroom, and some of them brought extra oil so they could be ready, and others didn't. What's so fascinating about that parable is that the whole center of the story is about being prepared. These wise women who brought... are extolled as the exemplar because they were prepared. But weren't they also kind of selfish? Because when the foolish women realized they didn't have enough oil and asked for some help, those wise women didn't share. And didn't Jesus tell a parable in that same chapter? In that same chapter about being willing to help those in need, a parable about sheep and goats. There's even a parable. It's just a verse parable that fits over in Matthew chapter um, 13. It talks about a man who found treasure in a field. And when he found that treasure, he hid it. He covered it up until he could acquire the funds to purchase the entire field. The parable is about how much we should be willing to do for the kingdom of heaven. The parable is about sacrifice and about the value of the kingdom. But isn't there an element of selfishness in that? He found something valuable and didn't share it? There's even a parable in Luke chapter 18. It's the first eight verses. It's a parable about prayer. There's this widow who persistently petitions a judge, and that judge eventually grants her request, and he specifically says that he's not doing it because she's justified. He's doing it because she keeps bothering him. That's the terminology, the language used there. She keeps bothering me. And if you really consider the parable... Who's the judge depicting? It's a parable about prayer. It's a parable teaching us to be persistent in prayer. Is not the example then supposed to be setting that judge up to be like God in the scenario of the one who will hear and answer our prayers? Are we then to conclude, based on that parable, that we have a God who gets annoyed by our persistence? That we have a God who doesn't make decisions based on what's right and just, but on what bothers him or doesn't bother him in a moment? No! Because that's not how parables work. Parables are designed to make one specific point, typically so that we can go away with an understanding of that specific illustration that Jesus is making. And all that's to say that even if this manager was in fact unjust, unrighteous, or dishonest in his dealings with those debtors, take away from the point that Jesus was trying to make, sure. And so that brings us to the point, well, let's consider what we should take away from this parable. I don't know if I've helped you understand the parable anymore or given you any greater insight into it, but this I know I can do for you. And that is give two takeaways for us from this parable. And the first thing I think this parable is designed to teach us is to be fiscally responsible with God's resources. When it comes to money, God is identified as the owner. You and I are identified as his stewards. We get that from this parable. We understand that to some degree, God is the rich man. You and I are the steward. You know, this isn't the only parable that will make that analogy. You can go over to Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents. That's the whole premise there, that God is this this rich man who has these servants to whom he divvies up his resources and expects them to wisely use what he's given them. And if you really look here at Luke chapter 16, we only read through verse 8, but if you read the following verses, particularly verses 10 through 13, Jesus spends time talking about finances in verse 13 he says famously quoting something that appears in the Sermon on the Mount he says no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve God and money here in the aftermath of this unique and somewhat difficult parable Jesus says one of his most famous statements about money And his point when he says that is that you cannot serve two masters. There is an allegiance that's expected of you, and money vies for that allegiance. Because whether or not we'll admit it, money is an idol that we often bow down to. Jesus identifies money as having the potential to be our master. So we have to make a deliberate choice. Are we going to serve money or are we going to serve God? And the way that we serve God is by recognizing him as the owner of, of all wealth, and us simply as stewards to whom he has given some of that. In addition to that, in addition to identifying us as financial stewards, you'll notice that Jesus, he'll also present financial stewardship as discipleship 101, if you will as if it's like a a freshman-level course in being a disciple. Stewardship is a freshman-level course in what it means to be a disciple of God. Look here in Luke chapter 16, in addition to that famous statement about not serving two masters, if you look at verses 10 and 11, Jesus says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? In other words, Jesus is saying that if you can't be trusted with money, if you can't be trusted with unrighteous wealth, then how can you be trusted with even greater responsibility? How you handle stewardship Says so much about what you think about God. Because stewardship is a foundational discipleship principle that one must pass in order to move on to greater responsibilities. So, this parable teaches us to be fiscally responsible with God's resources, but there's something else it teaches us that must not be overlooked. This parable teaches us to be perpetually ready for judgment. To be perpetually ready for judgment. This gets easily overlooked in the story because it's quite obvious that finances play a part in the story since Jesus spends this three-verse segment afterwards expounding on money. And then if you look in the parable that follows, it starts off with another rich man. And in between... This parable and the next parable, we find out that the Pharisees were lovers of money. There is a money theme throughout Luke chapter 16. And so that makes it easy for us to overlook the fact that this parable is teaching us to be perpetually ready for judgment. We know this. Scripture indicates that every human being has a court date in the future. It's described in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In other words, Paul says, Judgment awaits everyone, and there will be no excused absences nor any postponements, because when Jesus returns, judgment will follow. Now, how did we get that from this parable? Remember back at verse 1? An accusation is brought against the manager. And the rich man says, all right, it's time for you to give an account. It's time for you to give an account. You see, this manager was put into a position where he unexpectedly was going to face judgment. Here's the thing, like that manager, we don't know when judgment will come. Twice in the New Testament, we're told that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. And the point being made by both of those passages is that the day on which judgment will be meted out is an unknown and an unexpected day. And since we don't know when that day will come, we should live in a constant state of preparation. We should be wise. We should be shrewd. We should be intelligent and prudent. We should be all these things. But we shouldn't be in the position the manager is having to devise a way to respond to that day of accounting because we won't have that interval of time that he had. We need to be ready right now for when we have to give an account. That's why Jesus told the disciples in Matthew chapter 24 to watch for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming and be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This parable should remind us that we've got to be ready to give an account. There's a legend about Satan and his imps planning their strategy for attacking the world. And one of the demons, one of the demons says, I, I've got... I've got a plan. When I get on the earth, I'll take charge of people's thinking. And I'll tell them that there's no heaven. And the devil responds. He says, that will never work. They'll never believe that. Because they have this book. And it's full of messages about the hope of heaven. And sin's forgiven. They'll never believe you. because they know that there is glory in the future. And then another imp spoke up, and he says, well, I've got it then. I'll tell them there is no hell. And the devil said, that's not good either. Because in that same book, Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else. They know that in their hearts, They know that sin has to be dealt with. They know that they deserve hell. And that book confirms it. So it won't work. And one brilliant little imp spoke up and said, well, then I know what we do. Let's just tell them that there's no hurry And Satan said, that's it. That'll work. If you take one thing away from this parable of the shrewd manager, take away the realization that a day of accounting is coming, you don't know when it is, and you're not going to have the time to devise some strategy like he did. Maybe tonight as you're here, what we've talked about has Sparked within you the realization that you're not ready for that day of accounting. Maybe in talking about this, you realize that there's some preparatory work you need to do. If that's the case, then we invite you tonight. We invite you to make a decision to eliminate the sins in your life. By confessing that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, by repenting of those sins and being immersed in water, where those sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus. If you need to take a step of preparation tonight, then we invite you to come while together we stand and sing this song.
1: I am- you.